If you turn with me to Mark chapter 5, it's in the back page of your bulletins. Starting at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of, their synagogue, of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making such commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So far, the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 5 is a text in which Jesus is surrounded by a great crowd. And what I would like you to do this morning is I would like you to imagine in your mind that you are part of that crowd. That you're standing in this big crowd of people like you're a crowd of people today and that Jesus is in the crowd. And there's some other people in the crowd too. There is a, a sick woman in this crowd in which you are part of. A sick woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And then there's, there's also a, a desperate dad a desperate dad whose 12-year-old daughter is dying. So I want you to imagine that you're part of this crowd. There's a sick woman, 
and there's a desperate dad. We're going to pay attention to both of those people in the crowd, in the story, but then most of all, we want to look at, watch, and listen to Jesus as he moves in the middle of this crowd. So let's, let's start. We're in the crowd, and in the crowd, there's a sick woman. What's wrong with her? Well, we know that she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. Prolonged menstrual bleeding, perhaps polyps in the uterus. 12 years is a long time. The bleeding means that she's probably anemic, she's probably often very weak, and that she feels very tired. We know from the story as well that she's really suffered at the hands of doctors. She's, she's had probably some very uncomfortable and all unsuccessful remedies and cures proposed to her. And they've, these doctors have, have proposed these things to her at ridiculous costs. So rather than getting better, she's actually been getting worse. Her condition is deteriorating. And plus it seems that all the doctor's fees for doing nothing have eaten up all of her money. So in a world without universal health care, her illness has bankrupted her. And so now she's not only sick, but she's also poor. Can you see the woman in the crowd? You can guess that probably in her culture, because of her situation, she doesn't have a husband. And according to Jewish ceremonial law, her constant impurity because of her bleeding means that she cannot enter the temple. For at least 12 years, she hasn't gone with the people of God to worship the Lord our God. And so we have somebody here in the crowd who's in desperate need and who lives on the dangerous margins of society. And she seems to be incognito. I sort of imagine her wearing a long shawl, perhaps wrapped tightly around her head, hiding her identity, hiding her her reality, the reality of her illness, and she's winding through the crowd, trying to go by unnoticed, head down, trying to sneak up to Jesus and get close to touch him and then run away. That's what she's up to. She's weak. She's tired. She's sick. She's poor. She's afraid of being discovered. She's a victim of her circumstances. She is a desperate woman on the margins, and we don't even get to know her name. And I wonder how many women here today say, yeah, I can resonate with that. Or I wonder how many nameless women like this woman you passed on the streets of Ottawa this past week. Desperate and poor and sick, eyes cast down, victims of circumstances beyond their control. People who are afraid, nameless women on the dangerous margins also of our society here. I think that despite our, our best intentions, we often overlook people like this. And if we're really honest, 
And perhaps we sometimes also have a tendency to judge women like this. Assuming that, well, their problems are somehow their own fault. And so it's easy to brush past this woman in the crowd. She's on the margins. It's easier just to pass her by, not spend much time paying attention to her. But we should, because that's what Jesus does. And because underneath all of the signs of the trouble and trial and poverty, there's something very beautiful about this woman. Verse 27 and 28. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I'm struck by that. She doesn't say, well, if I can only just touch his clothes and maybe I'll, maybe I'll get some healing. No, she says, I will be made well. This woman speaks with faith. She speaks with faith. This, this desperate, poor, bleeding woman speaks with simple but powerful faith. And she reaches out and she touches Jesus. I, I love that as an image of faith. That's an image of faith. What is faith? Faith is to reach out and touch Jesus. That's what faith is. To reach out and touch Jesus and seek his power. Of all the people in the crowd, this poor, perhaps nervous nobody, a sick woman, has something to teach you. And she has something to teach me about faith in the power of Christ. A faith that reaches out and touches Jesus. Do you have faith like that? See, we don't just look at this, this desperate woman and feel sorry from her, for her. We look at her and, and learn from her. Do you have a faith that reaches out to touch Jesus? Do you have a faith in the power of the Lord's miraculous power in your life? Or is your faith more about sitting back, observing Jesus, perhaps from a distance, talking about him, theologically dissecting him and his work, but not really expecting him to do anything in your life? Never really running to him, never really approaching him, never really reaching out to touch him, never really expecting him to do something in your life with his power. Mark tells us that when the woman was healed, when she touched Jesus' clothes, Jesus felt he perceived the healing power leaving him. I find that very interesting. Somehow Jesus could feel that happen. So you're in the crowd, right? We're imagining you're in the crowd, and then you look at Jesus. What does he do when it happens? Look at Jesus. What does he do when it happens? Well, he stops, and he says, who touched me? Now, why does he do that? Why does he, why does he ask that question? Because the disciples think it's a ridiculous question. And you're in the crowd. What do you think? Why does he do that? Why does Jesus stop and look for the person who touched him? Well, obviously, Jesus wants to meet this woman. Because Jesus is not just a healing, dispensing, vending machine. Jesus cares about people about individuals. Jesus doesn't just donate to the local healing cause. 
Jesus is concerned about people. He wants to meet this woman, and he wants to encourage her. He wants to explain and his healing goodness is not a healing goodness that comes to us from a genie in the bottle, but it comes throughout to us from the power of God through living faith. And so as the woman sort of slips away or head down, tries to go away out of the crowd, Jesus looks for her and he pursues her and he says, well, who touched me? So how, you're in the crowd. So when Jesus says, who touched me, how does he say it? Does, is he walking along and he says, hey, who touched me? I don't think he says it like that. It's not a, a stern, threatening, interrogating Jesus who's, who's wondering who stole something from him. This is the gentle Jesus who reaches out to the suffering and says, who touched me? Who touched me? It's not Jesus saying, oh, there we go again, people taking advantage of me. It's Jesus saying, hey, maybe I can give her more. It's Jesus gently seeking the woman to give her an opportunity to speak with him and her to see him to speak with her in love. It's God incarnate drawing people to himself with his words. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't this a wonderful God we have? And so the woman comes, and she's afraid. She's, she's you, you know, you, you can see it. She falls down before Jesus. She's trembling, and she just spills it all out. She just tells him the whole truth, which is another great example of what faith is, as we learn from this woman. Faith is to reach out and touch Jesus, and it's also just to, to kneel before him and just tell him all the, all the things, to tell him all the truth. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, daughter. He calls her daughter. He calls her the daughter of God. Jesus names the nameless woman. This nameless woman on the margins of society, poor and bloody, is today, 2,000 years later, still remembered around the world as the woman that Jesus named daughter. And he speaks with love to her. He speaks with compassion. Just like he speaks with love and with compassion to all of you here at Resurrection Church this morning. Because we need that, don't we? You desperate poor and suffering women need that, don't you? That God would speak with love to you and compassion. With a love and compassion that can overwhelm your desperation. I need that. You need that. The person sitting next to you need that, needs that. The desperate women you have passed in the streets of Ottawa this past week need that. My daughter, he says, my daughter, your faith has made you well. He draws the woman into relationship with him because he knows she needs more than just physical healing. She needs to be encouraged. She needs to be encouraged in her faith. Your faith has made you well, he says. Hmm. So here's a question. Was, was she healed by her faith or by the power of Jesus? That's a bit of a trick question, right? 
Jesus is not suggesting here that the woman's faith was the source of her own healing. Christianity is never a question of, of having a strong enough faith or a big enough faith because you can have faith small like a mustard seed as long as your faith is in the right person. I mean, you think about the quote on the front of your bulletin today. I would rather have a little faith in the right object than have any amount of faith in the wrong object. The question is, is who your faith is in. And the woman's faith has made her well because she's placed her faith, she's reached out and put her faith in Jesus. Her faith has made her well because she's plugged herself into the power of Christ and his healing power has flowed through her faith to make her well. And then the last words Jesus says to her are so beautiful. He says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. The last thing he does is he blesses her. He sends her out with this, this blessing. She's been healed of her bleeding. And Jesus in the book of Mark is on his way to bleed on the cross. And on that basis, he gives her a spiritual blessing as he's given her a physical healing. He says, my daughter, go in peace. So you're in the crowd. What's Jesus' face look like when he says that to her? What does his face, face look like? I think he's probably smiling. I think he's probably smiling because he's happy that he got to meet her. And he's happy that he got to heal her. And he's happy that he got to, to bring this woman into closer relationship with her, with him. And he's happy that he's had the chance to encourage her in the faith. And so he smiles and he says, daughter, go in peace. Go in peace with my blessing, O daughter of God, and go live your new and your healthy life. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is amazing. He's so good. And you're in the crowd. You, you saw how the woman came with her, with her shawl perhaps tied tight around her and her shoulders over and sort of sneaking through the crowd, hiding her identity, hiding her condition, suffering, full of sorrow. What does she look like as she leaves the crowd? What do you see as she leaves the crowd after she's been healed and loved and blessed by Jesus? I imagine she's smiling too. I imagine she's standing a little bit taller and her shoulders are back and there's big thankful tears in her eyes and she's saying, he healed me and he encouraged me and he talked to me and he blessed me and he called me daughter. He called me daughter. Ah, oh, Jesus is good, isn't he? Can you see him? Hmm. Look around in the crowd again. Let, let's look for somebody else. Let's look at Jarius. Jarius is a man. He's very different than, the, than the, the woman. My guess is he's a healthy man, and he's the leader in the synagogue of the city. He's a well-known man. He's a religious man. He's a respectable man. He's unlike the sick woman. He's also probably quite rich. He has servants. But in another way, he's exactly like the sick woman. Because Jarius is a desperate dad. Oh, he's a desperate dad. Because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Any of you have a 12-year-old daughter? The gospel writer Luke tells us it's his only daughter. Some of you here know what it's like to lose children, eh? 
Is there anything that you can imagine that is more scary, that is more heart-wrenching than helplessly watching your daughter die? I have one daughter. I don't even want to imagine it. And so like the sick woman, Jairus comes and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And the, the text says that he implores Jesus earnestly. The head of the synagogue falls at the feet of the head of the church and you can almost hear him in the crowd the desperation in his voice the pleading and the crying the man at the end of his robe jesus please save my daughter jesus please save my daughter you know some people some people look down at the poor women in the world and some people despise the rich men. But Jesus loves them both. Jesus loves them both. It reminds me of, of the Josh Garrel song. Jesus loves them both because we're all castaways in need of ropes, hanging on by the last threads of our hope. See, desperation does not respect socioeconomic class. And it doesn't respect gender, but neither does faith. Faith is found amongst those who, who reach out and amongst those who fall down, whether you're rich or you're poor or you're healthy or you're sick. But what is for sure is that nobody advances in life or in faith by pretending that nothing is wrong. Both Jairus and the desperate woman do not pretend that nothing is wrong. And I wonder how many of you today are pretending that nothing is wrong. Are you pretending that you're strong? Don't do that. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're a boy or a girl or a man or a woman or rich or poor or powerful or marginalized or nameless or very well-known, faith is found amongst those who say, I have a need, and my need is Jesus, and I'm going to stop pretending because I'm obviously weak, and I'm fragile, and I'm going to fall down, and I'm going to reach out before Jesus, and I'm going to humble myself like the sick woman and like Jairus the desperate dad. So what does Jairus say to Jesus? You can hear it in verse 23, and you can hear how, how it's similar to what the woman said. He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he doesn't say, Oh, Jesus, can you come and lay your hands on her because maybe perhaps there's a possibility that, that might do something. He says, come and lay your hands on her so she will be made well. So just like the sick woman, Jairus is speaking in faith. He speaks in faith. He puts his trust in Jesus Christ for the life and death of his 12-year-old daughter. And he implores Jesus to come. He speaks with confidence of what Jesus can do to his daughter. And Jesus goes with him. And so as you begin this reading, there, there's this sense of hope. There's this sense of hope, and, and Jesus is going to heal but then Jesus speaks to the woman, 
And then while he's still speaking, the text says in verse 35, the messengers from Jairus' house come and they say, it's too late. Your daughter has died. Well, today is Father's Day. And those are the worst possible words that a father could ever hear. It's too late. Your daughter has died. The worst news. And you can just feel all the hope sucked out. It evaporates into thin air and the rug is pulled out from underneath Jerry's feet. And so you're in the crowd. What is he looking like? Can you see him from your vantage point? Can you see his face just fall? And his hands fall and the anguish wash over him. The soul-piercing, earth-shattering news of his daughter's death. And some of you have received news like that. And when that kind of thing happens, when the floor under your feet falls out from under you and, and you're in the chokehold of bad news, and what oftentimes is the case is you need somebody in your desperate state to sort of take control and, and tell you what you need to do and tell you what you need to think. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. You can imagine the scene. It's, it's, I, I imagine Jairus, he's sort of fallen down on the ground in his desperation, and Jesus reaches down and grabs him by the shoulders and says, Jairus, look at me. Look at me right now. Look at my eyes. Look through your tears, Jairus. Look at me. I heard what they just said, but it's not too late. Do not fear. Look at me, Jairus. Believe. John Calvin, a 16th century Protestant, speaks about this event and he says, when Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, he asks Jairus to make room in his fear-filled heart for faith in the goodness of God. When Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, he's asking Jairus to make a little bit of room in your fear-filled heart for faith in the goodness of God. Jairus, make room in your heart in this horrifically tragic moment. Make room in your heart for faith in the goodness of God. Do not fear, only believe. Those are powerful, commanding, and calming words. It's the kind of Savior we need in desperation. And they're words that we also have to hear in 2022 when death or fear or anxiety or despair seem to wash over us, we need to stop or we need God to stop us. To know that God is God and look to Jesus, to look him in the eyes, to feel his hands upon our shoulders, to fix our gaze upon his and to make room at his request in our hearts through our tears to believe and have faith in the goodness of God. Do not fear, only believe. So you're in the crowd, you peer through. What does Jairus do? What does he do? You can imagine the tears. You can imagine the, the, 
the disorientating waves of, of emotion just breaking over him. But then you see through the crowd, you see Jairus, and what does he do? He listens to the words of Jesus. He listens to the words of Jesus. There's a miracle right there. Jairus discovers that even, even in the worst moment of his life, even in the worst moment of his life, he can, he can walk in faith. He discovers that's true. He receives the worst news about his daughter, and then he follows Jesus into the house. He follows Jesus into the house. Christ is the one who's leading the way here. I, I imagine as Jesus saying, okay, and now we're going to go. And he reaches down and picks up Jairus' hand. He says, I'm going to take you. And Jairus, with his tears in his face, is being led by the hand of Jesus. And if, if that's not another picture of faith, I don't know what is. Faith is to reach out and touch Jesus. Faith is to, is to kneel before Jesus and just tell him all the things. And faith is to let Jesus hold your hand in desperation and follow him. So Jesus comes to the house. Everybody's crying except Jesus. And he says to them, why are you making all this noise? Why are you all crying? Why the commotion? The child is not dead. She is sleeping. <laughs> I love that. She's sleeping. See, death is no longer death for Jesus. For Jesus, death is sleep. That's what God does. God changes death into life. The Christian faith gives us an entirely different way to see death to see it as something more akin to sleep. In the 16th century, there's two, two guys in their 20s who wrote a summary of the Christian faith called the, called the Heidelberg Catechism, and they decided to start their document with the following question. What is your only comfort in life as in death? And the response is, is I belong, body and soul, in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Fear not, Jairus. Only believe that you and your daughter belong in life and death, in body and soul, to Jesus. Follow my lead, Jairus. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in the crowd and we're looking at the desperate woman and we're looking at at the desperate dad. But all along, our eyes have been fixed on Jesus. Isn't, Jesus. isn't Jesus amazing, a God of compassion and a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of great power? What a savior we've got in Jesus. A God who does not discriminate, a God who draws both the rich and the poor and the powerful and the powerless and the women and the men and all the desperate people to himself. The Lord who heals and who touches and who bends down to bless and encourage the downtrodden and the depressed and the despairing. The God who grabs us by our shoulders. The God who looks us in our eyes with compassion. The sovereign God who speaks truth into your despair and into my despair and who uses our, even our most desperate moments to teach us something about trusting him and letting us, us be led by him. Our Savior who calms our fears and who cares for our souls and who cups his big hand around our little one and says, Saw, just follow me and I'll lead you where you need to go. 
Isn't God great? We got a good Savior. And we're imagining ourselves being in a crowd where Jesus stands, but we're in a crowd right here this morning. And Jesus is here too. By the power of his Holy Spirit, Jesus is in this crowd. Jesus is in Resurrection Church this morning. And his spirit is moving in our midst. And he's doing his wonderful work of encouraging us even now. Have you been encouraged by songs and prayers and by this word and this word preached? That's because Jesus is here in this crowd. Have you felt his presence? Can you feel his love? Oh, I pray you know his encouragement. Because it's not so much that we need to imagine ourselves back in the world of Mark 5, but that we must know that we ourselves are here and where two or three or a hundred are gathered. Jesus is here. And he's drawing you even now to himself, seeking to encourage you and strengthen your faith so that as you reach out this morning and as you kneel this morning, and as you come to him with your pain and the pain of your loved ones, you might find Jesus holding you. And you might hear Jesus whisper to you this morning, fear not, only believe. I'm confident that Jesus will bless you this morning before you leave these chairs so that you, so that you can walk out of here with your head a little taller and your shoulders a little more back so that you might smile and know that you too, every one of you, has been called by name by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the end of this story the end of this story is so tender and so beautiful. Jesus takes the little dead girl by the hand and he says to her, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha Kumi, that's that's written in Aramaic. That's the language that Jesus spoke. The rest of it is written in Greek. But So why does Mark, the writer of this gospel, why does he write Talitha Kumi in Aramaic? Why does he not just translate that in Greek like he's done for everything else that Jesus has said in the passage? Well, there's a really good reason for that. And the reason is, is that in every language, there are certain expressions, certain idioms, certain words, certain phrases that are so rich in that particular language that when you translate them into another language, you lose the meaning or you lose the feeling of it, that the translation doesn't do it justice. And that's the case with Talitha Kumi. Talitha Kumi, you can translate it as, little girl, I say to you, arise. But that, that doesn't translate the feeling of it. Talitha Kumi is the expression that a loving parent might use to softly wake up their daughter in the morning. Not like when you're yelling at your kids to come get out of bed to go to school, but when you're gently waking up a child in the morning 
Jesus holds the hand of the dead girl and he says to her, Talitha Kumi, it's like he says, it's time to get up, sweetie. Wake up, gorgeous. It's time to get up. Lève-toi, ma puce. Lève-toi, ma chérie. And the soul of the dead girl obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, many of your loved ones and perhaps some of your children have passed away. And one day you will too. But for us who die in faith, for us in Christ, death will only be asleep. And we will experience what this little girl experienced. When God will take your hand in his nail-scarred hands and he will whisper, time to get up, sweetie. Lève-toi, ma fille. Hey, little man, time to get up. It's a beautiful morning. Wake up, my love. And we will open our eyes and we will see the glory of God in the smiling face of Jesus. So sick women and desperate dads, boys and girls, and all you friends in the crowd, do not fear, only believe. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would cast out our fears this morning and that you would help us to make room in our hearts for faith in your goodness. Give us faith that reaches out to you, Jesus, and falls at your feet. Faith that worships you, trusts you, finds joy and healing in you amidst the tears. Faith that walks in your footsteps and knows your deep, deep love for us. Amen.